Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Hello and welcome to what is episode 17 of Bilge Pumps. No, we're not quite sure how we got here either. We're really not sure why Simset keeps letting us do this. But (laughs) it is your usual crew, me, Dr. Alex Clark. The great Draken Fennell and Jamie Seymour of CDL from Armoured Carriers. And of course, Draken Fennell is from the site of the same name, the Twitter account of the same name, the shop front of the same name, <laughs> and all sorts of things of the same name. And today we are joined by Sal 2.0, or Sal Murky Arlingo, to talk about what navies could actually learn from Merchant Navy. So Sal, would you like to introduce yourself a bit? Sure. Uh, my name is Sal McCagliano. I'm an associate professor of history over at Campbell University in North Carolina. Uh, before uh, embarking on an academic career, I was a merchant mariner, sailed for three years uh, with the uh, Navy's Military Sealift Command, worked ashore for them for four years in their operations office, and then uh, embarked on an academic career. I got my uh, master's in maritime history and nautical archaeology from East Carolina University and a PhD in military and naval history from the University of Alabama. And my dissertation was on the role of the merchant marine in national defense. It's one of my favorite things that the University of Alabama is one of the best places in the world to study naval history. <laughs> it, there it, and go. When you're thinking about names of universities to go and study naval history, don't take this the wrong way, but Alabama, does. you sort of think, you're quite a lot away from anywhere which is really sort of, deep blue, what we would call the major war fighting at sea areas. But this, there's this great little history centre, this sort of island of naval history in the middle of this territory. You sort of go, that's just a beacon for hope for everything. Every time someone tells me sea blindness happens, I go, have you heard about the University of Alabama? If they can make that work there, why can't you make it work here? I teach maritime history in central North Carolina, and the only maritime connection I have, our, our mascot's a camel, but we, we're on Bowie's Creek. So that's my, uh, that's my uh, little access to the sea right there. <laughs> so what's, what's the history of that? Was it, how did that um, get going? Was it, was it um, just a, 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 a random assembly of academics at some point? Or usually these things have some sort of benefactor that kicked them off. They did. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, uh, the, the former, and this is years and years ago, but the former uh, uh, historian for the Coast Guard uh, wound up uh, leaving, acad- uh, leaving the professional job, and he went over to Alabama, started a history department, and, and created a naval history area. And then really, the, as in, and Alex knows this very well, you follow along with professors. It's more than just locations. It's, it's who's there, who are you going to work under for a dissertation. Mm-hmm. And, and in my case, I worked under John Beeler, who's very well connected with Andrew Lambert, does a lot on Victorian uh, Royal Navy, uh, is, uh, doing the papers of Alexander Milne, and, and j- just a, a, a fantastic all-around person. Uh, really, the reason I'm where I am today is because of him. And so that's that's how Alabama kind of generated up. And then we had a nice little funnel of master students coming from the archaeological and underwater program at East Carolina over to Alabama. So there was a little, you know, a previous academics have gone that way and so it created a nice little chain and i was just one of many that's gone through there it is a bit like that in academia i have to admit um i'm quite funny sal and you probably know this from my twitter feed i'm openly dyslexic which is a weird thing in academia apparently according to one of my previous heads of department and um it's always quite interesting when i get into interviews 
the two conversations which I can always guarantee come up will come up will be Andrew Lambert as my supervisor, because he was my supervisor when I did my PhD, and my dyslexia. Every single interview I have ever been in for an academic job, those two things come up. And it's sort of like, that's what the scales are really. All the other questions don't matter. What you're asking <laughs> is whether Andrew Lambert taught me well enough that it counterbalances my dyslexia. Or whether my dyslexia counterbalances my time with Andrew Lambert. That is what every single interview comes down to. And it's having a good professor can really set up a department. And it's one of the interesting things about that is it was the historian of the US Coast Guard, which is, uh, you know, I'm currently doing a lot of look into because over in the UK especially, but I think to an extent, certain point in America, I keep getting questions from my listeners on YouTube about the US Coast Guard and what they got up to in World War II, because when I touch on it, they're going, we didn't hear that. We didn't realize that before. And I'm going, well, they were part of the anti-submarine patrols. They were part of the D-Day landing craft crews. They were doing all sorts of things. And I'm sort of going, we didn't, we, we thought that was all US Navy or US Marines or this, that. And it's, it's quite sad in a way that the US Coast Guard are forgotten almost as their fighting service role because of their... Well, their boot, their uh, their sort of prohibition role mostly seems to come in, or the prohibition history of the Coast Guard seems to come up quite a lot. Well, and I have a good friend who's the command historian for the U.S. Coast Guard, uh, Atlantic area, and the, now the another one who is the historian for the Coast Guard. And that prohibition era is really an interesting period because a lot of the small boat operations, uh, anti-submarine aircraft uh, that they use for uh, prohibition patrol, and even uh, the crypt- uh, cryptology that they're using to break codes used by rum runners were instrumental in developing a lot of the uh, uh, predecessors that were necessary for the Navy and maritime forces in World War II. It's a really interesting subject. Mm-hmm. I agree with you entirely. They don't know that much about the Coast Guard, but it's uh, under the surface, they played an inordinate role, plus the small boat operations, landing craft, all that stuff, as you mentioned, Alex, is, is extremely important. And it has a relevance today, because if you consider the operations the Coast Guard are now doing against those, which we've covered in Bill Trump's in the past, the various high-speed submersibles, which are sort of being developed as for putting in drugs, and the... Drac came up with a very good name for them, and I've forgotten them completely. He'll probably remind me in a second. Um, All these vessels, all that operations which the Coast Guard are now getting on, it's probably the most live and realistic anti-submarine warfare training we've got going on because you consider most exercises, they have very fixed rules about what constitutes a kill because no one really wants to damage your very expensive multi-million, if not billion pound destroyer or submarine doing an exercise. I, on the flip side, I don't know how many times you can have a Coast Guardman jump on board a submarine and knock on it to make it stop, as opposed <laughs> as, as opposed to a, a, a Russian nuclear submarine. I don't think that works quite as well. But you're right. I, I do think well, they, they are. Has anyone tried? Yeah. <laughs> I thought that's why we had Navy divers. You just drag <laughs> them below the ship and they go, hello, we're here. <laughs> oh... Seriously, someone's going to try that at some point, aren't they, now? Now we said that. We put it out in the ether. It's 2020. It'll happen. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) So, global shipping and merchant marine. Um, Look, it's... As as someone who's pretty got the least naval, you know, um, indoctrination out of all of us, I suppose, just being a a general sort of journalist, as being my background, um, it... 
shipping seems to be more important now than at any point in history, really, especially for places like Great Britain, you know, which basically is well and truly beyond its ability to feed itself. It's totally reliant on shipping to bring in, bring in food, uh, you know, basic foods now. And that can be said for just about every country in the world, except for the United States, Canada, and Australia. Um, and yet merchant marines seem to be, you know, the, the strategic value just seems to be completely ignored or run down. Um, you know, basically the only country I'm aware of that seems to actually have been expanding its um, sovereign shipping capability um, is China. Um, I think it's got something like 4,000 of its own flag vessels now versus 300 for the United States and uh, a grand total of zero for Australia. Interesting position to be in. Well, I, I think you hit on a point there, Jamie. I mean, number one, you're right. A, a global trade has increased exponentially. I'll give you a, a figure off the top of my head. In 1950, we shipped about world total was about a half a billion dollars worth of trade went on the world's oceans. In 2018, that number was over 11 billion. So, I mean, we've increased about 22 fold over 70 years. And, and just the, the amount of goods being moved across the ocean today is, is, is larger than we've ever seen before. We've also changed the nature of that trade in the fact that now you don't have to stockpile goods and equipment. You can do just in, just out logistics where your goods are arriving on a fixed schedule. And that minimizes the amount of money and, and warehouse space you have to devote to cargo because you know that the sea is always moving in a constant maneuver. Add to it, the, you know, one of the tenets of Alfred Thayer Mahan was this idea that sea power rested on, on really two pillars, a military and a commercial application. But Mahan, in, in, in his book, always says, I'm a military guy, I'm going to talk about the military aspect. And, and we always tend to forget about that commercial aspect. And, and today, I, th I think one of the things we see from COVID, for example, is what happens when that global supply chain is interrupted, when, when there is a disruption, whether it's COVID or a, a conflict. We saw what happens when that global supply chain all of a sudden hits a hiccup. And it, I always use the, uh, the analogy. It, it's very similar to what we did in, in the wars, uh, world wars when we did convoy operations. You shift from the steady flow of goods to a pulse, and it mm -hmm. creates problems that you can't foresee until it happens. And you're right. Most major powers today have divested themselves of their national merchant marines. We rely much more on multinational companies under open registries or sometimes called flags of conveniences to move goods and that well, is you know, look, just just there I mean, you know i've often thought the ultimate james bond supervillain you know instead of um trying to find ways to nuke us from orbit to basically just take over panama and, and um malta and uh, take control of their shipping lists and, and you're exactly right i mean one of the biggest issues is is those fleets those panamanian liberian isle of man uh marshall island flag vessels which raises issues for nations you know in the past you know great britain really built itself along the lines of a Royal Navy and a Merchant Navy at the same time. You can make the argument that the Royal Navy, uh, when it adopted its ability to shift from sail to steam, did so based on P&O ports that were able to stockpile coal. It was a big detriment, for example, for the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy couldn't adapt to steam power as easily because it didn't have those overseas bases, which were really ports for their Merchant Marine because they didn't have a large Merchant Marine to do it. And so it's one of the reasons why, for example, the U.S. Navy shifts to oil, because they needed to find an alternative. When they send the Great White Fleet around the world, 
1907 to 1909, there's, there's a lot of argument about, well, they didn't have enough colliers to do it. It's like, no, it's not that they didn't have enough colliers. It's that the U.S. Navy was dependent on coal from the mountains of eastern the United States, and you would have to stockpile coal all along the route, which they kind of did. But one of the things that the Navy used this for was an argument to get new colliers, new larger ones, more more uh, a more advanced replenishment fleet to follow it. And I think that that particular um, circumstance also highlights the, the risk of not having of vessels under your flag specifically, because obviously if they're under your flag, you can pass laws that say things like, yeah, in an emergency or in the event of military need, you would vessels under our flag will do this kind of like a lot of the rms ships that were built under admiralty loans whereas with uh yeah with the great white fleet i know one of the problems was they sort of said well we want you to take coal to our ships and and the people were like well we'll happily take the coal to your ships but at the destination they're going to be at there's no cargo for us to bring back so the overall run isn't going to be profitable so uh, thanks but no thanks um <laughs> which was a little bit of a a, a problem because they said the coal was there the ships were there but the ship owners sailing under whatever flag they wanted to sail under just flat out wouldn't do it. Whereas if you've got a large merchant marine that flies your own flag, um, to a certain extent, you can turn around and say, well, actually, it's in the national interest. You will do this whether you like it or not, um, which especially these days, considering that well, like sort of World War One, World War Two, you're talking about sort of maybe four-figure, maybe low five-figure displacements for most merchant ships. So there's an awful lot of them. So if one of them is blown up, it, it's a, obviously an inconvenience for the ship, but it's not a massive inconvenience for the nation unless you start losing a lot. Whereas these days, with the, sort of the big container ships and everything, 60,000 60, ton plus, even the 100,000 ton plus, when you get into things like big tankers, if one of those goes down... Um, that's a big problem for everybody because you don't have too many of them. Well, I was discussing right. the Battle of Jerusalem convoy recently, and um, that when you talk about it in terms of tonnage, the, the Axis forces lose forty thousand tons of merchant marine, and people these days go, "Oh, that's not a lot." Well, these days that's one ship. That's less than one ship lost, but that wiped out. That was about five or six ships, and it wipes out. The Italian, uh, the sort of the capability for a good couple of months for the Italians to resupply the North African forces. Think what would happen today if we lost one of these container ships. Mm. Or, for, or equivalent equivalent um, values if you're in a war and you've got a con and there's a convoy running and somebody pops up and puts four container ships and an ultra large crew carrier on the bottom. Mm. And, and, and that's one of the dangers that that you see in, in in a conflict is is the risk of losing one of these ships is so high. You know, a company is more likely to lay up the ships, put them at anchor than to take the chance and, and run them. I mean, we're literally seeing that right now with with passenger liners sitting there empty and, and, and not running. And more importantly, we've consolidated ocean travel and ocean freight into these large conglomerates. There, there's basically eight container lines that, that handle 85% of the world's shipping. And all of them are in these international alliances, these agreements. And you know, one of the things you can foresee in a peer-to-peer -peer style conflict 
is companies go, you know, uh, a nation going, you know, China goes to a company and sit there and say, you know, hey, if you support our enemy, you know, we're going to put one of your ships on the bottom. And, and mm. they're more likely to just either divert them, lay them up and put them aside. And then you also have the issue of cyber attacks where, you know, you don't have to physically sink a ship. You just have to make it so the ship can't sail. Uh, Maersk Lines a few years ago was the victim of, of a cyber attack that shut down its operations. MSC, Mediterranean Shipping Company, had a similar attack earlier this year you know if if you don't have the st stability calculations and the and and the cargo figured out that how to move 24,000 boxes off a ship you're not moving them by hand and paper it's just not going to be done you just you, you can't do that and that breaks your system mm. i suppose that probably also highlights an interesting parallel between the merchant marine and the navy in, as you say, in terms of consolidation of, of assets, and I'm thinking specifically in terms of shore installations, because if you look at, say, World War One, well, actually, more World War Two is probably the better um, look. If you've got a convoy coming transatlantic, either if it's coming to the UK or it's heading back to the US, if those ships need to offload or there's cargoes waiting for them at different points. Once they're in relatively safe coastal waters, the convoy can split up and you might have a 40-ship convoy, but it might be going to 20 different ports. But these days, there probably aren't 20 ports on either the U.S. East Coast or the U.K. coastline total that can handle a 80,000-ton container ship. So it means if you're going to have, uh, if you're going to have this convoy... If they, you, you're going to use your modern shipping, it makes it much more easy for your enemy to look and go, right, well, there's only so many places they can physically offload this much material, which means it's all of a sudden, rather than if you're a U-boat captain in the Western approaches, it's going to like, well, they might be going here, 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 or here. If if you if you were, let's say, if you're going to do a Cold War going hot scenario in the 1980s, it would be, well, they're either going for Liverpool or... Liverpool. So I guess I know where I'm putting my submarine. Um, and and, and, and the, I think the navies these days possibly are facing similar kind of hazards, because if you think of something like, I mean, well, actually, actually at any scale, it's like think of how many different shipyards built Essex class, how many different shipyards, even, the, even though there are only four of them, the Iowas were built at multiple yards, how many yards built Gato class subs or Fletcher class destroyers. Even if you like, OK, World War Two is probably very unrealistic for it to happen. But even if somehow magically, uh, I don't know, maybe Bismarck decided it was going to go and randomly go after the U.S. East Coast, even if it shot up Bethlehem Steel um, completely, wasted all its and expended all its ammunition before it finally got sunk and completely wrecked the Bethlehem Steel shipyards, it would be an inconvenience. But there are plenty of other shipyards out there that can that can build battleships and carriers while they rebuild it whereas these days i think there's like one maybe two yards that can build nuclear attack subs um one or two yards that can build um aircraft carriers and so forth and and that applies equally to the uk as well so and most other major countries so all of a sudden it's a case of well actually if someone really wants to ruin your long-term prospect in a war it only takes one Sort of maybe one uh, uh, guided missile sub, an SSGN or something full of cruise missiles, and if enough of them get through to wreck that one yard, 
you can't build anything of that. What did that yard build? Now you can't build it <laughs> at all, I, period. I, I think, Jack, you hit on a major point there because one of the issues you have is is if you stop building merchant ships in your nation, you know, if you're Great Britain, if you're Australia, if you're the United States and you stop building merchant ships, you can get merchant ships. I mean, you can go to Korea. Korea demonstrates they can build merchant ships. I mean, if you want to see textbook model of, of how to build a merchant ship, you go to Korea. That Korea just built in the span of two years a dozen vessels, the largest container ships the world has ever seen, 1,300 feet long, capable of carrying 24,000 containers. They built a dozen of them, and they're out in operation right now. They, they, they just launched the last one of them. The HMM St. Petersburg is out there. The Algeciras came out in April of this year, and now they're on the route between Europe and, and Asia. So you can see how to build a commercial ship. But like you said, if if you look at World War II, you know, that same yard, if you look at Newport News shipbuilding, you know, the same yard that built the battleship Indiana, the USS Yorktown, Essex-class carrier, and all these other ones, prior to launching on that slipway, they built the SS America, which was the largest at the time passenger liner for the United States. And and so you you had that commercial infrastructure of building ships. And I know building commercial ships and Navy ships are much different. They're they're two different beasts in many ways because of what's involved in them, their size, their scale, the, the machinery, the electronics, they're all different. But some of the skills are still fundamentally the same. Building a hull, an engineering plant, pumps, you still have that infrastructure. And as you mentioned before, that infrastructure for repairing vessels, you know, right now we're building Ford class aircraft carriers, which we can talk about for hours and hours about issues with them. But one of the biggest issues is there's no dry docks to put them in that can service them on the West Coast. And so you're putting an entire class of supercarriers solely basing them on the East Coast because that's the only dry dock that can fit them and sustain them right now. As you said, in World War II, one, one of the things that helps the United States immensely during World War II is we start repairing British ships, you know, when formidable, indomitable, and illustrious come over and, 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 uh, War spike goes up into Puget Sound. We're repairing ships, and so we're building up our infrastructure, our repair infrastructure. If you look at for the United States, every ship larger than a cruiser is built in East Coast yards, except for four uh, anti-aircraft cruisers built out in San Francisco. But everything bigger than a cruiser is built in East Coast yards, basically from Newport News up along that little stretch of, of New England coast right there. But the West Coast yards were instrumental in building auxiliary vessels. Uh, uh, Liberty ships, victory ships, but more importantly, repair capability. I mean, all the ships that come out of Pearl Harbor are going to Puget Sound, San Francisco. Overhauls are on the West Coast. The reason the Franklin goes all the way to New York is because the West Coast yards were jammed with repairing facilities. And one of the things that commercial infrastructure allows you to do is have those shipyards and repair facilities. You know, again, we just had two destroyers involved in collisions in 2017. It took two and a half years to bring Fitzgerald back online. And I would argue that the damage was severe, but it shouldn't have been two and a half years severe mm. for it to get back in line. So it's one of these things is that also it's not just the commercial facilities which have, uh, have gone down. I was looking the other day into the number of weapons capable loading facilities that are now available in Europe for NATO. If you think about it, when when you were talking about World War Two, etc., pretty much every navy yard, every place had a pontoon and a facility which could take, which could offload, unload weapons safely and efficiently. Relatively so. Now, when we're looking in the UK, 
Well, there's been one modern one being built in Scotland. And theoretically, they maintain the capabilities in Portsmouth and Plymouth. Theoretically. But they have not really upgraded those facilities because the great big weapons dump and uh, all the spaces which hold, which hold these things, the magazines, etc., are up in Scotland, buried underneath a whole load of granite for their own protection and for everyone else's protection. So leaving aside the whole SNP independence campaign thing and the issues that can cause, it's the same for America. It's the same ever. These facilities have been got that you sort of thing. These are the facilities which the government has the most direct control over. And they're not even going, we actually need to maintain multiple of these person facilities because what happens if one of them gets taken out? Or what happens if there, there's an accident? I mean, you look in World War II, I mean, all you have to do is look at an example like Port Chicago, Westlock, and, and you have these incidents that take place. You know, just look at modern-day Beirut and, and what happens when you bring ammunition or a volatile cargo into a commercial port. And, you know, one of the things we're doing besides consolidating shipping lines is we're consolidating ports, you know, and, and ports themselves are inherently – you know, near major transportation hubs, rail lines, airports, uh, uh, highways, mm. and that may, you know, they tend to be outside of urban areas now. We're moving them a little bit outside of that, but you're exactly right. Uh, and we're also diffusing, you know, one of the things that, that I've done in my research is, you know, if you look at the history of the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Navy and the Merchant Marine were synonymous. Literally, we created a U.S. Navy out of a Merchant Marine, went down to the docks in Philadelphia and said, we'll take those four ships <laughs> and, and give us the crews and, you know, okay, congratulations, you know, you're a USS, let's go. Mm. And, you know, the founding fathers of the U.S. Navy were all merchant captains. Mm. And, in, and in the Revolutionary War and War of 1812, the privateers, the commercial men of – the private men of war outnumbered our commercial men – or our government men of war. And, but it's diffused. It, 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 we've seen this bifurcation, and it's moved apart. And, you know, no longer can you do that, although we talk about that every now and then. We talk about turning a merchant ship into a warship, slaps them. VLS cells on it and, and, and some sonar surveillance equipment, you know, and some uh, some arrays on it. But we've seen that bifurcation. We've seen the bifurcation, too, in, in, in the facilities. And one of the big problems is those facilities are being consolidated down in the smaller and smaller, larger areas, which make them more ripe for for targets in some cases. And, and just natural disasters as well, like cyclones slash, you know, uh, hurricanes. Um <clears throat> They're becoming rather increasingly common and uh, <clears throat> quite active along the east coast in particular. Um, so, you know, it's as we were saying before, it's there's so many different factors that can um, influence uh, uh, you know, the availability of these reduced services. But, you know, I guess the other thing is, is that look, you know, merchant navies aren't just container ships, are they? They are, when the U.S. Navy in particular, um, Merchant mariners staff the supply ships, your fast transports, your salvage ships, your submarine tenders, um, even the command ships and uh, expeditionary, um, the new expeditionary vessels. So you've got, not only have you got a merchant mariners aboard right targets such as a tanker, but they're also on ships that, you know, seem to be pretty purely naval if you're talking about a command ship. Um but at the same time, you're saying that, as we're saying, there's a very uh, strong demarcation between what a naval sailor is and what a merchant marine sailor is. Um, and I think, you know, that's sort of come to the fore recently with um, 
uh, it hassles over COVID-19. So, yeah, is, is this demarcation done its time? Does it need to be, does it need to be that so that the merchant marine needs to get a greater status? Um, I'm not sure how it works in the Royal Navy exactly. I think the Royal Fleet Auxiliary does ha have a closer relationship with the Royal Navy, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. I'll have to um, check with the, Dr. Clark on that one. But, um, you know, it's, is, is it, have things got to the point where this demarcation is making a, a problem or accentuating problems? Oh, I think I think it has. I mean, I just did a recent piece in Simsec on it and, and talked about it. So, you know, the Royal Fleet Auxiliary, which has been around since 1905, is, is a much more, I would argue, integrated entity into the Royal Navy. They're, they're a separate element, but they're commanded by their own, which I think is a very important element there. The, the Commodore in charge of the RFA, uh, 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 Commodore Lamb right now is, you know, has sailed for 38 years with the RFA, a wealth of experience. In the United States Navy, what's, what amazes me is, is, is the lack of knowledge of the fact that one out of five ships in the U.S. Navy, out of 300-some vessels, one out of five of them are crewed and, and manned by merchant mariners. And it, it's a very unique thing. It's, it's, a, it's a process that I've studied a lot and written about. It, 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 it was a 100-year process. You know, basically go back to 1899 when, after the Spanish-American War, the, the U.S. needed to start stockpiling coal around the world. And they basically took some old colliers and hired a merchant marine master and said, okay, crew this vessel up and sail it around the world and dump your coal off. And it has grown exponentially since then. And, you know, now 20% of the fleet has got these merchant mariners on board. And but they're different. The mariners are different than than navy sailors, for example. They, they operate on different schedules. They operate uh, under different kind of licensing. And I, I'd make the argument that that the navy views them as kind of uh, inter not interchangeable, but almost disposable, and not in a bad way. But just that they can hire new merchant mariners to replace old merchant mariners, and they can keep that pool. But that only works if you have a viable pool of merchant mariners, which means you have a viable commercial fleet. And the problem is the U.S. fleet, like many Western nation fleets, is decreasing because in terms of economics, where do I, I don't care who carries my goods into Walmart. I really don't. It doesn't matter if it's on a U.S. flag vessel or if it's a Panamanian flag vessel. All I care about is I can get my you know, cheap goods you know, at, at a low, reasonable price. If I have to do it on an American vessel, a British vessel, a German vessel, you know, it's going to cost me more money. Because of the standard of living, the standard of wage, the the the, the building costs, you know, we, we forget. But ninety you know ninety point one percent of all the world ships right now are being built in in China, Korea, and Japan. They're it. They're you know another four percent in the Philippines. And if you look around the world, there's not one other country on the planet that builds more than one percent of of the world shipping. And so all that shipping is consolidated in those one areas, which is great. It it, it creates those cheap vessels I talked about earlier. But if there's a conflict between China and Japan one day, what happens to the world's fleets? Where's the maintenance done? Where are the new vessels come from? What, what, what disruptions has come? You know, I get a lot of people who say I'm prophesizing World War III. I'm not. But what I am prophesizing is we have seen global disruptions of trade caused by forces outside of peer-to-peer -peer conflicts between great powers. You know, we saw it in World War I. We saw it in World War II. And, and, and now we're seeing it with COVID to a certain extent. I think COVID really gives you an insight to what happens to global shipping in case of a, cr a crisis right now. You're seeing a lot of issues with crew rotations, and that's, that's an increase in accidents. 
just read through any maritime report right now, and there's the accidents seem to be happening. I, I mean, Mauritius got hit by a bulker because that bulk carrier was getting close to the island because they wanted Wi-Fi, you know, because <laughs> the crew hasn't been off in in eight months, and they wanted to contact home and you know have a birthday celebration. And what they wound up doing was running into Mauritius and causing a, a, an economic and, and environmental disaster of of huge proportions to a beautiful site that didn't need to happen yeah and i suppose the other, equally as you say you've got china japan but with so many ships being built in south korea what happens if dash when north korea finally loses the plot <laughs> um it, uh, or, or, or to be That's perfect the thing they have it at the moment well that they've not been quite dumb enough to try and fight everybody yet well, I think they're, they're on an the extended Royal... breather from nine, the 1950s. <laughs> but, but the Royal Fleet Auxiliary just bought us, bought us new tankers from Korea, didn't it? South Korea? Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. And yeah. honestly, the British were looking at it. And it's one of those interesting debates which happens every time the Royal Navy buys any sh- any merch, any sort of auxiliary vessel. Is that you have a whole lot of people go charge around going, we should build it in the UK. And we go, yes, we should. And then you ask the British companies, and they'll go, uh, well, we're all kind of specialised in warship construction or these sort of constructions. We don't build this. To build this, we'd have to have a whole lot of retraining done because we don't build this style of ship anymore. And that's the thing. Your special, your shipyards are very specialised these days. The uh, shipyard, it, it, if you think about it again, in the shipyards in the 1940, in the 1930s, 1940s, they would have warships against merchant ships. And if you went to a shipyard, you'd go, can you build me this type of ship? They might never have built it before, but they'll go, well, give it a go. <laughs> These days, they sort of go, well, no, that's not in our that's not in our area. And you look at it, the Royal Navy wants a store ship. At the moment they're looking for free, they're looking for two, preferably free. The reason they put in two, preferably three, uh, they want they accept prepared to accept two, is because they know the cost of buying them in the UK will be so much greater than buying them from Korea and then outfitting them in the UK that they will probably only be able to afford two rather than three. We all know the navy really needs three, but this is the realities of if you're going to build in the UK. And I actually support it being built in the UK, but my thinking is if you're going to start building these things in the UK. You have to start building enough consistent, uh, keeping a consistent drum roll of tankers and things going through the UK. You have to start doing what the Italians do, which is they build warships and then they sell them off when they're still quite young, like they're doing with the Egyptians at the moment. They're selling them two of their older friend frigates and they're building two more to keep their yards going. You have to actually do a policy like that in order to keep the yards going to make it sustainable, because these are commercial yards. To make them work, you have to give them sustainable work. And, and it's also the loss of expertise as well, because mm. there's going to be specific expertise for building certain components. I'm I'm thinking of like the fact that everyone everyone on the surface is slightly perplexed as to why the U.S. Army is still building M1 Abrams, even though the U.S. Army doesn't want any more M1 Abrams. But Congress is forcing them to have new ones that basically drive straight off the factory floor and into a giant parking lot specifically to make sure that they still have a factory capable of producing one tanks because they know if they shut it down then that expertise will go away very quickly and i know i I know it's historically maybe even still now jamie can probably update me on that but i know with the with a lot of the australian yards one of the one of the reasons why the last lot of warships built in australian yards took so long 
well, there are many reasons for it, but one of the justifications given was basically that if they were all built really quickly, then the yards would have nothing to do for several years, and again, all the workforce would disappear. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they sort of split the uh, destroyer, the anti-aircraft destroyer um, components up between several different states you know, mm. for political political reasons, but also for maintaining shipyard reasons. Um, and yes, we're having that same debate now of um, you know, how do we keep a sustained um, production run in these locations to maintain that uh, that skill, which is uh, you know, not welding is not any uh, is a much harder skill than you know one would imagine it. And I think mm -hmm. one of the best paid jobs in the country at the moment is a, a skilled welder, particularly if you're working on submarines. So you know, um, but at the same time though, you know, uh, we again we're prepared to pay a massive eighty percent premium on the cost of our new submarines. In order to have, you know, 80% uh, of them built here, but that percentage now is down to about 40% of them being built here with the same 80% premium. <laughs> so, you know, we, that, that project is uh, rapidly, um, you know, going uh, tail up, I suspect. But, um, sure. Look, I mean, I guess yeah, that brings me back, you know, the United States Navy, for example, it's, mm. it's just recently awarded the Commission for um, National Security Multi-Mission Vessels, new training ships, essentially. Um, you know, they basically are being built to carry 600 cadets. They have a, a mirror bridge for controlling the ship or virtually controlling the ship. Um, but they're also being configured to be disaster relief vessels that can carry up to 1,000 personnel, helicopter deck at the back and stores. Um, so, you know, in many ways, it's a troop ship by another name. And it, it just when I was reading about that, a few weeks ago, um, I was thinking, well, is this is this a, a way of making the merchant marine more relevant, or is it a way of making the merchant marine do more um, for you know? It, 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 is it more just more added workload for a already stressed and uh, underpaid, underrecognised group unit? So. Uh, you know, we've seen similar sort of pressures here in Australia that, um, you know, it was the idea was rejected, but about a decade ago, the idea was to build our new um, supply vessels at sea underway replenishment ships with a, a flight deck and basic facilities for helicopters um, and for, you know, for, for, for operations that way, again, being a spare flight deck. But it shifts it away from being a supply ship. It becomes a multi-role vessel. And that brings a, you know, a merchant marine uh, crew into a more frontline role. What are your thoughts on, on that, sir? Well, I, I, looking at the uh, the new vessels they're building for the training, the training ships for the academies. I mean, I mean, in many ways, you're building merchant merchant vessels by the government. It was what you're doing, basically. You know, in the past, what you would do is use old government vessels, old troop ships, mm -hmm. old. You know, what, what you had is a surplus. Well, that doesn't exist anymore, so you have to go ahead and, and do that. You know, I go back to the 1920s. 1920s, when the Great Depression hits, and all of a sudden shipyards were locked up and closed up, and we lost that, that ability to build ships, we knew that we could restart it again because, number one, there wasn't an alternative. Those jobs weren't going overseas. They just were stopped, you know, and so we had to retrain and re-equip. And so a lot of the things, for example, in the United States, we, we, we initiated laws, the Merchant Marine Act of 1936, that rekindled shipbuilding in the United States and, and got shipbuilding going. Same thing in, in Great Britain and Canada and Australia. You saw these you know programs to start rebuilding ships and get the industrial base 
back up and going. And, and I think one of the things that we tend to forget is if you look at the the, the growth in fleets in, in navies in World War One, World War Two, a lot of that growth was merchant vessels being brought in to serve as auxiliaries, as transports, as as you know, let's slap some guns on it. You know, one of the biggest groups in World War One were yachts. We brought yachts in to do uh, patrolling elements. Uh, you know, we brought in uh, uh, passenger trawlers as troops of trawlers. You know, all the, all yeah. All, all, I mean, let's re, re-equip whalers and basically take a whaling ship design and, 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 and put a four-inch gun on it and roll it out there. And, and again, I, I think we lose that ability now. You know, you're trying to force commercial vessels. It, it's very hard to do it. You know, one of the things that has happened is, you know, our, our sea lift fleet, which is a very large sea lift fleet that can haul, you know, one of the things that makes the U.S. military a very viable military is we can pick it up and deploy it and sustain it far away from the continental United States. That's yeah. a skill that not a lot of nations can do. But that fleet that does that is diminishing, diminishing, getting older, because in the past what we would do is just take old American ships or old merchant ships and roll them into this reserve fleet so we have them. They don't exist anymore. We're not building them anymore. And and our Congress doesn't like the idea of using foreign-built, foreign-flag vessels for that. And so we're, we're literally getting to the point where we may not be able to sustain a large presence overseas. The British in, in the Falklands in, in 1982 had the advantage of both the Royal Fleet Auxiliary and the ships taking up from trade. Stuffed was great. It worked well. It, 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 it provided the shuttle ships for the station ships that supported the task forces. But one of the, one of the things not written about that deployment was the impact stuffed had on the vessels when they tried to return back to trade and that trade was gone all of a sudden. It had been taken by somebody else and a lot of ships went just to layup and out of business. And and so, you know, you, you create this environment where you almost need government merchant ships versus commercial merchant ships. And I think that's where the U.S. finds itself in a very precarious position. It's it, it's kind of pigeoned in a hole or kind of backed itself into a corner where now it has to build commer- has to build commercial ships by the government. And, and that's not very sustainable. No, and so well, <laughs> I suppose that's. I I imagine the actually on on almost any in any government, but I suppose especially in the U.S. government, if you ended up with a government-owned, government-built, government-run merchant ships, and they were all of a sudden, well, it's a kind of a catch twenty-two, isn't it? Because if you, if they make a loss, everyone screams about government waste and everything. And if they start making a profit, everyone screams about how you're you're taking away industry and profit from from the private industry. <laughs> so you can't you can't win, right? And, and there's I mean there are examples in the past. I'm doing I'm working on an article right now of 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 twelve ships that held the line for the U.S. Navy in 1942, and the twelve ships aren't what you would think. They're not the aircraft carriers. It's not the Enterprise. It's it, it's not the Yorktown. It's twelve oilers that the U.S. Mm-hmm. built commercial oilers that they built. But the U.S. government gave the the shipping companies, Esso and and, and uh, Keystone, a little bit extra money so that these oilers, instead of being 16-knot oilers, single screw, were 18-knot twin screws. And the U.S. Navy gave them a little extra money for the construction, a little extra money for the maintenance and operation because they're going to consume more fuel. But then those vessels can be converted into oilers, and, and they immediately were. You know, Eight of them become oilers. Four of them are converted into the Sagamon-class escort carriers. And, you know, they're, they're filling a, a hole until Essex-class and Independence-class carriers are, are available. And, you know, I'd make the case that, you know, when you lose Neosho during the Battle of the Coral Sea, that's a more significant loss in some ways than Lexington can be because now all of a sudden you've lost one of only a few fast oilers that can sustain 
the fleet, you know, why are the battleships not in at the Battle of Midway? They, you know, there's seven of them. There's there's Task Force One. They, there's a large battleship fleet still in existence. They can't sustain them. They, they, they don't have the fuel to do it. We have the fuel. We just can't get the fuel to the vessels because you're going to have to tie up every large oiler with them. And so th- there's a synergy that can exist that's that's smart to do. The problem is, again, you know, we're building a whole new class of replenishment oilers right now in, in San Diego. Uh, but we're going to build 17, 18 of these things. And do we need 17, 18 of them? I would argue you only need a few to sail along with the task forces, the forward task forces. What you need is maybe six of them, but then you need a dozen or more regular tankers that can be used for commercial service, but then can go up and supply those six as being forward. Uh, you know, one of the things that the Navy has, has failed to really identify is we've become very used to fighting conflicts in the Persian Gulf. Well, Persian Gulf is great. You're a couple of hundred miles from Oman <laughs> and, and your supply source. The Pacific mm. is, is, is a, a tyranny of distance problem. You know, the Indo-Pacific region is tremendous. Your logistics just becomes magnificently different and, and exponentially different, I should say. And I don't think they really appreciate that what it's going to take to sustain a force in Guam from the West Coast. Is the model we should be following then something like what the Royal British did with the Point class, which are these sort of row-row ships um, <coughs> used for moving supplies around the world? And they're owned under a sort of special RFA contract. And when they're not in use by the British government, they get used in merchant ships. And they can take up merchant, but then they're always the British government can take them back. So they're sort of the British government can say, well, they're merchant ships, so they'll make a profit when they're not in use by us. But when they're in use by us, we use them. I, I've advocated and, that that model for a long time, Alex. It sort of seems sensible. Now, but, but was that the story you were talking about earlier about um, the ships after the Falklands War? Those row, was, was it the row row ships that didn't. Didn't uh, that went back home to discover that their contracts had been snaffled up elsewhere? Uh, I think it was some of them, but the, this is be, these have been built more recently than that, and they're sort of the point class were built mainly with the idea that Britain was going to be needing rather lot moving large amounts of supplies around the world. It was basically built with the lessons of the first Gulf War, where we had to ship pretty much ninety percent of our working army. Um, oh, out from Europe to the Middle it's East. It's much smaller now, so you don't have to worry about it, surely. No, no, we don't need so many anymore. Um, especially it, it, uh, especially, especially when you don't have tanks anymore. That'll be so much easier. You could just put them on a car carrier and off you go. Oh, no, we're going to keep tanks. We're going to keep 56 because that's a really useful number. Mm. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> what, not 22? <laughs> Douglas Adams will be spinning in his grave. I have no idea. Anyway, leaving that to one side. One of the interesting things is we've done a lot of discussing. We haven't yet managed to get around to the topic, which is of the, of this discussion, which I actually got Sal here under the pretext of. But we've wandered through all the history and all these things. The question is, what is our merchant navies currently doing that actually navies could learn from? There's a lot of things going wrong in both sides, and I think we all agree. But one of the interesting things that interests me is the way the merchant navies are especially approaching the idea of unmanned, of how to have minimal crews, of how to work these things out. And I think there are things that the navies could probably learn from this, in the thing, you know, learn from this. And I think they probably are paying attention, although they're going to keep very quiet about it because, well, let's be honest, if you pay too much attention, it might cost you money. 
No, I, I think I think if you look at so first off, the idea of a vessel being completely autonomous, no crew at all, is is something that you you probably won't see for large commercial cargo carriers, just because you can never insure the thing. I mean, you just mm. send your ship off, you know, and good luck. Hope we'll see you on the other side of the Atlantic and, and hope it arrives. And I, I just don't think you'll ever see that. But you're right. I, I think one of the things that you see in in you know small crews and vessels that are thirteen hundred feet long but have a crew of twenty two. You know, one of the reasons you see that is because so much of the, the equipment there is not just automated, but is actually uplinked. You know, a lot of your engine, a lot of, a lot of your, your machinery has uplinks and it's being monitored from ashore and in data centers where they can monitor not one ship, but hundreds of ships at the same time. It is much more seamless. And more importantly, you can bring on riding crews that allow you to service vessels and engines as needed. And that allows you to keep your, you know, your your highly paid crew of of deck and engine personnel smaller, and then you could bring on these technical crews to kind of keep your ships serviced and maintenance. And I think that's that's a viable aspect that the Navy should look at. The Navy tried to do this with, in the U.S. Navy tried to do this with LCS, and it just it was a, it was a flawed model from the very beginning because of the type of plant they were using, the machinery they were using, the and, and more importantly, what the vessel was designed to do. As opposed to what a cargo, you know, a cargo ship is, you know, throw lines off, hit the sea buoy, set your speed to what you're going to set it for the entire voyage, and don't ever touch it again till you come into port. That that's not what a navy you're, ship. You raised an interesting point there. You raised an interesting point there. What was the LCS designed to do? Well, I, I mean, <laughs> the, the LCS. <laughs> The LCS, you, you get you get the other salad to talk about this all day long. You realize that, that, that that's his purview. Sorry, I was, I was just being cheap. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You'd cut about three hours of that from the thing. <laughs> but but to go back to Alex's point, I, I think there is a lot they can learn. I, I'll give you a, an example. So cruise lines, cruise lines and navy don't seem to go hand in hand unless you're thinking about troop ships. But I would argue that if you look at the operating of cruise lines, so I did. I looked for one-year operation of Disney cruise lines, which is the most anti-military thing you can do. And I looked at the four ships that Disney operated for a given year. Of those four vessels, one was out of service for a month, two of them were out of service for about three weeks, and the other ran continuously for an entire year. And, and one of the things I would argue is, well, how are they able to maintain that schedule? How are they able to maintain a vessel literally 100% of the time. And for a lot of missions navies have, you know, if, if you have an offshore patrol vessel, an OPV is not a frigate. It's not designed to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Navy. It's designed to show the flag and, and monitor there. How do you do that? What, what that vessel should be designed to do is maintain itself on station. How do you maintain itself on station? The same way the Disney Wonder does is it has five engines. It runs on three of them. One's a backup, and the other one is always under repair. And that allows you to basically avoid a shipyard except for every three years or so when you have to get your hull dry docked. And you can maintain your presence because as long as the ship's moving and, and showing the flag, that's all important. It's all important, you know. And and I think those are the type of lessons that the navies can be looking at. But the problem is Disney is, is an offshore company. Carnival is an offshore company. And so there's not a lot of visibility in there. And so navies don't take advantage of that there's not that interoperability between the uh, mer merchant fleet and the navies that once existed where you would shale that you know again go back to the day of sail you had a sailing master on board why'd you have a sailing master on board because he has years of experience of sailing vessels and he can 
advise the, the the captain of of how to get the best out of his sailing vessel. Uh, the U.S. Navy should have done that. They should have looked to an organization like Military Sealift Command after the Fitzgerald and the McCain and asked one of their masters. You know, the last master I sailed with was master of twenty four different vessels. You know, that's a lot of sailing experience. You know, and and he could tell you exactly what happened wrong on the Fitzgerald without a huge voluminous three hundred page report that points its finger at everybody since the 1980s. And, and that was it about 19,000 words. It is. That, it's huge. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, what he would tell you is they just, you know, the, the officer on, on the bridge didn't look out the window, didn't use the Mark one eyeball. And, and that was the fundamental problem. And is that coming back to that sort of, again, the demarcation between merchant and naval operations in the U S that the way that there just seems to be a, I don't know. Um, it's, it's just I can't think of the right word, but they, they, they just they seem um, doomed to be separated, doomed to think of um, each other as being um, the opposite team. Well, one of the things I've I've always been envious of the Royal Navy for is, is their ability to integrate with the merchant Navy. I always thought there was a, there was a, an ability to do that. You don't have, for example, in World War One, World War Two, you don't bring the merchant navy transports into the royal navy i mean you 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 basically you know almost all the masters on 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 uh, uh british passenger liners had a reserve commission and so you can activate that reserve commission you know and and you can basically control that vessel through the master in some ways the us does it a completely different way they they commission the vessels they bring them in they put us navy crews on board them and and there's a really a, almost a bipolar relationship between the two that never will the two meet in many ways. And now that's been exasperated by the fact that merchant fleets have diminished, national merchant fleets, except for China, has diminished. And you've farmed this off to offshore companies. And as you mentioned before, Jamie, I mean, again, if you look at the Chinese Navy, you know, the Chinese Navy is either number one or two based on how you count it right now. And the Chinese merchant marine, if you add in Hong Kong, is number two in the world. So you have China that's number two in the world in the Navy and a merchant marine. The United States has the number one navy in the world, but it has the number twenty-one merchant marine in the world. Who who's a better proponent of sea power in that an area in that scenario? If you're in a conflict, if you're throwing missiles, well then the U.S. Navy probably is in a better position. But if you're and, in soft and power, one would have thought one would have thought the U.S. Navy would be more than well aware of that, based on its Pacific campaign in World War Two. It was the fleet trains that gave it the ability to project constant air power, you know, into Okinawa, Japan. Uh, it, it's, it, it was a massive, very tightly um, balanced, but, you know, uh, an amazing operation of logistics. That, and, uh, you know, poor old Britain struggled to use the, what, what scraps it had left over from the Battle of the Atlantic to, to project four carriers around the world. But the United States Navy was able to project 14. But if you if you look at, for example, the RFA's history of, of World War II in the Pacific versus the U.S. Navy's history, if you look at uh, – there's a, there's a, a volume, uh, uh, Beans, Bullets, and Black Oil, that, that talks about the U.S. Navy logistics in, in World War II. One of the crucial things it, over, it misses 
is, for example, it talks about the Oilers going into Inuitok and, and refueling and then rendezvousing with the fleet carriers off of the Marianas or off of the Philippines or Japan. What it doesn't talk about is how that oil got to the forward bases, that, that, that key hub, which is those commercial vessels coming out of Texas and the Gulf Coast and Southern California or even the Persian Gulf area and, and, and bringing that, that oil over. It kind of just completely misses that entire point. And, and I think in many ways, the way the U.S. Navy looked at its logistics feed in World War II is, is how it looks at logistics today. It just takes for granted the oil will show up in those advanced bases and those advanced uh, uh, forward areas, which is, which is a, a, a key issue. Again, if, if, if I got to go toe-to-toe against a Nimitz battle group, I don't want to go against the Nimitz battle group. I don't want to go against the carrier. I don't want to go against subs. I don't want to go against the, 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 the cruisers or the Burks. What I want to do is go sink that unarmed MSC supply ship that's heading back to base to go refuel that has no defenses whatsoever. And in three days, the carrier battle group is out of fuel, out of ammunition, and it's got to withdraw because it has no supplies at that point. Why would anyone want to be a merchant mariner? I mean, your ship is is a number one target. Your ship is undefended. You're underpaid. You've got ridiculous... um, you know, uh, rostering systems and operating systems. Um, You've got no Wi-Fi, yeah. apparently. Yeah. <laughs> but, but your ship is being run by a satellite link from an office somewhere in the Philippines, probably. So, yeah, why would anyone want to be in the merchant room? Well, and that, that's a problem you have is is you have less and less people, especially in places like the United States, Great Britain, want to do that. Even even British flag, you know, the, the Stena tanker, that, that was a, a British flag tanker that was grabbed by the Iranians uh, earlier this year, I think it was. Uh, that had an, an Indian crew on board. And, and if you look at the plight of, of crews right now because of COVID-19 and inability to get off the vessels, some of those crews have been on there for over a year. And, you know, that's that's an extremely long period of time to, to be offshore you know uh, you know americans want to be on you know one day on one day off you know arrangement if i'm on for three months i want three months off and you know i want to get paid because if i'm an engineer i can get more money and have a a life schedule working at a power plant close to my house than i can on an on a tanker sailing out of valdez alaska to long beach california and and again it it's it's the issue that that modern navies have to face is that these merchant marines are becoming much more international controlled by international companies and their ability to sustain their fleets make it more requirement again if you if you look at the u.s navy's cooperative strategy for the 21st century the navy our u.s navy loves to write these strategy books and and documents you know do a search on merchant marine or sea lift in that document and and you won't see it you know you, you if you look through it it's great it's it's glossy there's there's pages you got all the images of every us navy ship but about page 5 there's a big picture of a container ship but it's a japanese built container ship flying the liberian flag and and they talk about the importance of trade and, and again trade is invisible to us it's invisible until it doesn't it's not there and then all of a sudden everybody realizes it and we what we have is runs on toilet paper and and paper towels with, um... To be fair, we've experienced all those in the UK <laughs> for COVID. I, I think most of the Western world has experienced it. I do remember that Jamie has told me proudly at one point that he had an entire room full of toilet paper. So, you know, no. this is what happens. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it went with a hat. Uh, look, it's just to stop the shine on my bald head, that's all. It's, uh... <laughs> 
I was going to say, I think, I think there is, um, oh, what's my train of thought? Sorry. Um, you're now thinking about the toilet paper that is stuck part of your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, oh, yes, that was it. No, um, it, it, in terms of taking lessons from the merchant merchant navy, one of the things I actually I I, I have wanted to ask this entire time is in terms of fuel economy and fuel efficiency. Um, now, obviously, there's, as you say, there there is a certain amount of you can optimize merchant ships because they are going to run at one speed all the time. Um, Navy ships don't tend to do that. But what I was thinking more specifically was I know there's been often again on again experiments with things like um, sky sails, like giant kites strapped to the front of ships to help economize on their fuel and at low speeds just maneuver or sail along on that what do you think the potential application of that would be in a military role I'm, and i'm thinking specifically in terms of things like anti-submarine warfare activity because if you if you're hunting a sub you don't want to go charging around at high speed anyway you want to go around slowly and okay you can motor along slowly but what's quieter than motoring along slowly if you don't have any motor noise at all because you just shut down your engines and you coast after your target at 10, 12 knots with a sky sail. What do you, what do you think of that? I know I, th- I think propulsion and means of propulsion right now are one of the biggest issues, and it's being forced by emissions issues. You know, we recently had uh, IMO, the International Maritime Organization, 2020 rules, which changed the the shift from heavy fuel oil to lighter fuel oil. To, to decrease, uh, again, uh, 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 sulfide oxide uh, releases and, and carbon dioxide re- releases in the atmosphere. And all I can't tell you the amount of work that's being done right now into this area to try to maximize propulsion and, and means. As you said, sky sails are one they're looking at, uh, ammonia as a, as a means of propulsion, LNG, liquefied natural gas, as a means of propulsion. And, and again, if you, if you go back into its history and you, if you look at the synergy between commercial and military, we see that a lot. We see a lot of applications, you know, uh, you know, Mauritania, you know, having the first, you know, uh, steam turbine, you know, large scale steam, steam turbine before Dreadnought, for example, and, and being able to use that. Uh, use of diesel engines. I think electric. I think battery power right now. We're seeing right now in the United States construction of, of ferries right now with battery powers. So, you know, you can basically get lithium batteries on it. You know, the fear was lithium batteries in submarines because of the confined space. But mm. on a surface vessel, you know, if you can come up with a system that allows you to have enough power from that lithium battery, again, you know, go to ship propulsion today. No one talks about horsepower and ship propulsion anymore. Everyone's talking about horsepower is wrong. They're talking about kilowatts because mm. everything's electric drive. That's what you want to see right now. You want to see how you can maximize your electric drive because the electricity generated on a ship gives you more utility in that vessel down the road. You know, so if you look at a large cruise ship, it has almost the same kilowatt, you know, propul- uh, generation as a Zumwalt. You know, the thing that makes Zumwalt a, a, a fascinating ship isn't its funky hull. It's not the tumble home. It's not the, the inverse clipper bow. It's the amount of electricity it generates. And that's, that's the key right now. And if you can generate that power and you can dump it into an electric drive, into an azipod, 
if you can jump it into uh, thrusters, a, a, a stabilization system that allows you to maintain a fixed position in the ocean and drop your sonar and be able to monitor or pick it up and go, I think that's one of the huge applications you see coming in. I, I, but again, one of the big issues is there's got to be the, the, the kind of the money invested in that by government. You know, it, it, it's slow sometimes commercially to do that. One of the things we've always seen is that there'll always be an incentive. There'll be a mail contract or there'll be a, you know, a, 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 even a subsidy, some kind or a prize of some kind to do that. You know, commercially right now, firms are going to basically use the operating systems they have until they don't need them anymore and they're being pushed. So one of the things we're seeing, for example, is on coastal and river boats is a lot of new unique propulsion systems are being used because you're dealing with a different type of method to push through the water. Rivers are different than oceans, so you, you have to come up with a different method to do this. And so they're trying to really change the way they operate those vessels. And I think you're right, Drac. I think one of the things that we can see is how the commercial feeds into those propulsions. That doesn't exist if all of a sudden those companies aren't British or American or Australian anymore, but instead they're international. And more importantly, they see that as a proprietary right, and that's a competition thing. That's going to give them an advantage and make their freight costs or their profits higher for their shareholders. They may be less willing to share that new technology than a national government would be. It's one of those interesting things, is though. Again, we're talking about these megawatts, and I, I get into trouble occasionally because I bring this up on Bill Trump's quite a bit. I'm often talking about power systems now being as generators and using pulp propulsion systems. So you have your engines are basically generators on the ship now. And you can move those around the ship far easier if you get away from this whole shaft propulsion. And the whole idea, you know, you can have the pulp propulsion and you can have the power generators. And then you can have them shut down. You can as I think we've talked about in the past, have a system where you can take pods out and put in new ones and take the pods off to be maintained elsewhere. You can do like you were talking about, have multiple engines and have one turned on the maintenance while the other ones are running. Because if those engines aren't directly plugged into anything, if they are just generating power, then turning one off, yes, that's going to cause problems. But if you've built, that, you've built your system with the knowledge that you might do that, you will have cover to cover while you are doing it. And it makes sense because it is going to make your ships work more efficiently and get you, allow you to get more out of the hulls. And that is the trouble. If you have got less hulls, you have to work out how to maximise the utility of those hulls. And, yeah. Well, it's very much a front, it's, it's my, fa my favourite hobby horses. It's very much a front-wheel drive thing, isn't it? You know, how many cars these days are made front-wheel drive because it removes the, the weight and the, um, you know, the, the, the heavy maintenance of the, of the drive shaft in cars. You know, it's, it's not often you see the, the well, you just no one makes big V8, you know, rear-wheel drives anymore. There's a reason. Right, and, and more importantly, electric power, you can dump all the power right into your drive. You can, you, can, you can use it for different systems. Again, if you wind up coming up with lasers or rail guns down the road and they become you know, applicable, then you have that power generation system that you can divert that power into those, those developments. And I think that's one of the big things we're seeing right now. So if you, know, if you look at 
you know, I just had a discussion with someone who talked about the fact, well, container ships are just big empty boxes. There's nothing in them. They're, they're so different from building a Navy ship. But it's not true because one of the things that you have in container ships is a massive requirement for power because of the number of reefer boxes, refrigerated boxes on board mm-hmm. and, and, and monitoring of, of container cargoes and, and sensors. And, and so, you know, all of a sudden these, these requirements are a lot bigger, even tankers. With, with having to uh, clean their, their their oily water discharge, you know, no one discharges anymore. You know, the the, the unknown uh, uh, myth of of, of Ulithi in World War II, that great picture of, of murderous row of aircraft carriers, is in looking at the U.S. Navy fleet. It's a huge demonstration of U.S. naval power. But man, you wouldn't want to fall in the water in Ulithi because it's just full of sewage from all those vessels pumping it, you know, right in there. And and you know, that's that's something that systems, you know, uh, ships have to learn not to be pumping stuff overboard. And and those are commercial applications that are not being always designed or, or backfitted into naval vessels. You know, just you know, the the ability of a thousand foot cruise ship to maneuver into a dock with no tugs. Is, is something lost in the U.S. Navy, which could be an, an advantageous element. You know, it would be good to be able to get a ship in off of a, a harbor or berth. If you're an auxiliary vessel, if you're, you know, if you're an LSD and you need to offload cargo, but if you need four tugs to get you in and out into a harbor that's been hit by a hurricane or, or destroyed by enemy actions and you can't get into the, per- the berth, you're as, you know, out of action as, as, as an enemy hit. Whereas, oh, you promotion. know. Right. Yeah, uh, buddy. Up, I was actually discussing that with um, a couple of people yesterday. We were having a very, very strange late night discussion about the possibility of converting the liner Queen Mary two into uh, a converted, a converted aircraft carrier. So <laughs> How much alcohol came... was involved in that? Um, <laughs> that this was full before we started. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So How much yeah. Iron brew? Uh, cut with iron. Uh, there's, like, there's about four bottles lying around. <laughs> um, I like it, man. I like it. But yeah, I mean, the thing is, one of the things that actually came up under that was um, the fact that it would be very, very maneuverable and agile because the Queen Mary II doesn't run on normal shafts and props. It it it's effectively a modern version of the turbo electric drive. It has its onboard diesels and turbines, but they feed power into electrical pod units. And as such, it's it's a, it's actually fractionally bigger length and beam wise than a forward class carrier, but it can dock itself and it can do a 180 on the spot with its pods. Um, I wouldn't necessarily want to be on it while I was doing a 180, but it can. <laughs> um, uh, no, well, that's and, the ultimate donut. Let's yeah. be honest. And, and it can, I guess it's also based though it wouldn't be able to get, you know, 30 knots plus. Well, like no, it's the thing. Carry. The reason the reason we were talking about that is that the Queen Mary two is the sort of it's the world's last ocean liner as opposed to cruise liner. It can hit 30 knots. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. It's 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 80,000 tons, and it's and it's hitting um, 30 knots on about. Well, if you if you if you ramp up all the engines, all the engines are producing about eighty five. Eighty five. They're using well, theoretically they're rated at eighty five megawatts. It's four twenty one and a half megawatt pods. Um, although that might be that might be in it. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that matches up with the propulsion with the power generation. But yeah, I mean that that might be a a future for. Mm warships because you've proven you can do the speed and 
you think about just how vulnerable i mean hms prince of wales would like to have a very long conversation with you about how vulnerable propeller shafts can be to taking combat damage whereas if you if you've got podded propulsion not only is the merchant merchant navy proved that it can work but if you think about it, it's like now all of a sudden your stern is no longer a massive weakness you don't even have to necessarily at that point build your stern to accommodate the the various design compromises involved with having propellers and and rudders because if you can steer and propel yourself entirely on pods you can afford a much more hydrodynamically ideal stern shape and worse comes to worst if someone takes out a pod it's like oh no i have three or possibly five depending on if you go with four or six pods others that can just take over and motor along quite happily and there's no apart from some cables there's no massive hole in the hull and you can when you get home go oh i must now dry dock drop this pod out and put mm. in a new one and i am now back to fully operational within mm. a couple of days if not yeah. 24 hours and can oh, you... <laughs> i am so devastated by this loss of my pod i am going to cry over there into my beer but uh, and, uh, i'm also thinking in terms of rapid reaction both for surface and subsurface threats because um if you if you think about like what's the policy for an Ali burke if it detects incoming missiles it needs to turn broadside to those missiles in order to utilize the full range of its its vls suite um it can jam the rudder hard over and then it'll take depending on how fast it's going and what the alignment is it could be 30 seconds anything up to a couple of minutes to come full broadside if you're on pods you just go okay flip like full power to port pods full full power to starboard pods flip the starboard ones around 180 degrees and you'd literally be you'd be halfway through your turn before you'd finish the order um and can you imagine the look on somebody's face if you're a submariner and you're looking at that ah right we prepare to fire to tube one and then all of a sudden the ship that's just sailing on just says hello (laughs) (laughs) and and the azipods work in it both high speed and low speed it's one of the problems Mm. they've been having with lcs is the jet drives is is anyone who's ever driven anything with a jet drive will tell you once you're slow speed you do not control the vessel anymore it has a mind of its own and that's why you'll hear periodically lcs is banging along the panama canal and along the sides the Americans get a whole lot of experience operating those patrol boats in Vietnam and know exactly how terrible at so speed they are. Jeremy Clarkson, that wonderful driver, managed to crash <laughs> one in Vietnam. <laughs> Literally, he was driving slowly and safely. No, actually, he was driving at full speed and you still couldn't control the fucking thing. No, you, you can't. And, and, and the other problem you have is they, they, only, uh, they only steer very well at high speed and you have to get them up on that high speed. And it's, it's like anyone who owns a, a, again, go back to commercial versus military. Anybody who owns a boat knows your boat will push through the water until it reaches the point when it hops up and then gets on a plane. And, and that's the problem they have with LCS is, is, is it, it's completely fuel inefficient at any speed other than high speed. And and then it's still fuel inefficient anyway. It's, it can only go about three thousand miles. It just needs a. Mm. And it's the irony of a fifty knot ship having to have a twenty knot tanker right behind it the whole time, hooked up to it. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I was I was doing a comparison, and I came to the rather startling realization that at just over three thousand tons, the LCS has more has a bit uh, more powerful power plant in it than a Nelson class battleship, <laughs> <laughs> and it's almost, almost got almost twice the horsepower of a Colorado class, which I was. It's just like um 
Well, yeah. we better start thinking about time. So, I mean, my, my last question is just, you know, how applicable some of these things are when it comes to um, grafting between merchants and um, naval um, operations. So short staffing, as you were talking about earlier, or short crewing. I mean, is it really viable on a warship to be able to, to, to fly in your engineers when needed? Um, because you never know when they're going to be needed, I suppose, in operations. And the other thing that really fascinated me earlier was your mention of how vulnerable these short crewed ships are to, um, you know, to, to hack it. No, I, I think I think, again, it goes to the nature of the mission. You know, if, if you're stationing a vessel in the Caribbean for a presence operation, do you need to be, you know, on, on, on a full war footing? And, and again, you know, we have a big debate going on in the U.S. Navy right now about, you know, should Arleigh Burks be doing a, you know, anti-narcotic missions, or is that more of a job for a river class OPV style mm. vessel? And, you know, if, if you, you're sending in an OPV, then that should be the type of vessel, I would argue, that you can do the minimal manning, that you can do that, that element. If it's a Bay class L LSDA, for example, you know, you don't, you don't need that to be fully military capable. But at the same time, if you're sending a, a Burke class into the Black Sea, probably want it fully staffed, fully missioned up. And, and I think, again, it goes back to the roles and missions of how you want to use vessels. Again, the Navy's trying to, at least the U.S. Navy is, is, is you know, they have the Burks, and that's it. Basically, you have to use a Burke for everything. And, and much like we're using Kaiser-class or Lewis-class oilers for everything, we're using it for supporting the fleet, uh, direct, you know, fleet support. We're doing the underway replenishment, but at the same time, it's running back to the Defense Logistic Agency base to go get the fuel. And, and that's probably not a good use of, of, of resources. And again, the reason that happens is because you don't have that commercial entity to tap into to be able to move that. And, and so I, I think there are some elements that can be learned, but there also needs to be some highlights too of, of, of what works, what doesn't work in the commercial areas. But again, if you don't have that dialogue, it, it, it's very hard for the, you know, the Navy to sit there and learn, okay, well, this riding crews aren't going to work on an LCS. We need to put more crews on this because the crews are just inherently too small based on the mission yeah and then um, but if you build a warship for a certain amount of crew and then you discover you need more it suddenly becomes a very uncomfortable ship to be on uh, right yeah i mean I, it, I mean it kind of it kind of reminds me of something i think we discussed quite a few episodes back about the sort of the kind of i think we called it the loyal canoe kind of thing the loyal kayak the loyal yeah, kayak that's it loyal kayak but it's with the minimal manning thing, um, it's kind of this idea of, and I think in my mind, it's that, that's actually developed with recent news about the US and looking at the new large surface combatant. Because what I'm thinking is, well, if you're going to do large surface combatant, if you're going to do something that vaguely resembles the Zumwalt, so I has a massive superstructure and that high teens, low 20,000s of tons is going to have a lot of internal volume, then potentially you could kind of hybridize the approach so you have your very large heavily manned ship but within that you have probably have the room to have a suite of monitoring stations kind of like you were describing where the the merchant fleets they monitor hundreds and hundreds of ships remotely and then you could have relatively small mostly unmanned maybe four or five thousand ton anything from three to five thousand tons or frigate size things they've got the capabilities of a large frigate like a type 26 but the hull size is a lot smaller because most of it is automated but it has a small 
uh, amount of crew on board for sort of emergency taking of command, general ship handling, day-to-day maintenance, but they don't have to do the full range of suite, the sort of full suite of tasks that uh, an actual fully manned ship would have to do. And then all of those automated systems, instead of being monitored like on the US West Coast or something, which would be much more vulnerable, it's all locally networked to the ship that they're escorting. So you could take out your large surface combatant and it might have its own little surface action group of four to six of these sort of loyal kayak type ships. But collectively, those six escorts might only have 100, 120 people on board. And all of a sudden, you've now got six extra BLS platforms, six extra gun platforms, six extra radar platforms, possibly even six extra helicopter drone type platforms, which has massively increased your combat capability for a fraction of the crew costs. And I think, as we said at the time, you can also make it more survival almost uh, almost in the style of the A-10, where they, they stuck that massive titanium bathtub in to keep the pilot alive. If you've only got a crew of a couple of dozen, you can actually start to afford to look into extreme protection for the little part of the ship that the crew will be at during action stations, as opposed to um, ha- at the moment where you kind of, well, if there's crew everywhere, sure we can't armour the ship everywhere. We I'm sure the Merchant Marine would really enjoy that sort of... Um... Um, care for their uh, welfare, wouldn't they? I mean, you know, with their the modern ships that have got such mm. small crews, you'd you know, there's no mm. doing that on for a tanker to give them a degree of protection. Well, I think, and I think to be honest, some of them even have some some of the again the merchant marine. Some of it is even leading the way to a certain degree because I I believe that with the rise of pirate attacks, now a lot of the merchant ships that sail in those areas, especially off like Somalia and such, they actually have a kind of an onboard safe room which unless you're bringing large amounts of explosives, you're not going to breach. So if the ship does come under attack, they can just kind of drop into there and they're not at risk of someone poking an AK-47 in their face. But No, that's, it, that's right. That's one of the things that did happen as a result of Somalia. And I'm just thinking that that might be the way forward because you say fully automated ships, probably not going to happen for a while for a, a number of reasons. But if you can retain that small core of like the human factor, emergencies and immediate maintenance and you closely bind it to a as an escort to a much larger vessel that potentially could be could be a way forward especially nowadays with the usn let's face it probably in the next 10 15 years going to be outbuilt in sheer hull numbers by china um so that there, there needs to be and i think and, and that comes back to another point we were saying earlier about exploiting your technological advantage because if, if China might be able to turn out two dozen type 55s in the next few years, but if you can if you can come up with this, you don't have to build two dozen large surface combatants in two years. You can build six, but then you can produce four dozen or six dozen of these smaller automated platforms as escorts, and all of a sudden you I have good numbers of stitch back. The big question is, though, is that what's the merchant marine equivalent of that? How do we get mm. those mm. munitions and the, the fuel... Um, to those vessels mm-hmm. in that way it's, it's yeah. it, the but, bulk bulk is what everyone thinks it's bulk well the is thing is again system. if you are building these ships and this is going to sound strange but if you're building these sort of minimally manned ships in american british yards uh, around these large surface combatants those are a lot of facilities a lot of technology is going to be developed which honestly the merchant navies would quite like to use probably 
But the thing is, you're going to go, well, hang on, that's that's national technology because of the security thing. So they have to be built in British yards or American yards. And that actually might help to start building your own merchant yards up and actually give them reason. Because one of the things I find interesting when I'm talking about shipyard construction, if you start trying to compete for the same thing everyone else is building, they will go and build it in Korea. They will go build it in Japan where it's cheaper and you can churn out quite a lot of them quite quickly. If you are building something which is high tech and requires some specialist skills, you can actually make the case for being built in a Western yard quite well because you can go, well, you can't get these capabilities anywhere else. And that builds up your merchant shipyards, which helps you with other things, but also builds up your merchant marine because you go again and nice way. You can't take this tech and then flag it with another nation. Because it's got a, we've, it, it gives you a sort of it's going to sound strange. It gives the government a bit of control for a bit of investment. And that's one of the things you saw happen, for example, with passenger ships. I mean, cruise, cruise lines are built in largely Europe. I mean, a few yards in, in, in Europe. And what they did is they invested in that tech type of technology, that type of, of, of construction. And so, you know, if, if you look in Germany or in Italy and Finland and Turkey, you, you see sh- that or France, you see the them building those styles of cruise ships. But again, it, it also puts them in a place where that's what they build and that's all they build. Yeah. And more importantly, it also makes them vulnerable for what if China, which is about to happen, starts building their cruise ships and they can undercut those European yards, and now all of a sudden those yards are going to find themselves susceptible to running out of business for that. You know, I, I think the the element you guys were just talking about is a very important one, too, because I also think it allows you to be more productive with your fleet, too. If, if, if every Burke was uplinked, you know, in its engine maintenance, for example, you can have a, a center that's looking at a, a potential issue before it happens, you know, right now you're doing it kind of almost analog, sending in reports and, 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 and sending in information out. Whereas, you know, especially in early construction of classes, you can detect those problems that could be potentially catastrophic, take a vessel out, as happened with the LCS, where you had basically an engine plant meltdown at one point because there wasn't really a, a good oversight of how that plant was being viewed. And, and again, it also creates the ability to be more productive to to to, to mainstream and to maybe in, increase your deployment schedule out there you know because again one of the issues that that you have is the US Navy operates on this idea we need four ships to do one jo- job you know there there needs to be a ship on station there needs to be a ship going a ship coming and one in deep maintenance so i need four ships to do the job of one ship but if you can get up a system that allows you to cut that down to three ships you know, you can either take that other ship and use it for a different mission or you're cutting down your fleet and your operating costs. And I think that's one of the things that commercial is, happens all the time. If I could squeeze a knot out of a vessel, what does that mean for the long run in the movement of cargo over the span of a year? Or if I slow down a knot, how much money does that save me down the road? And, and those are the things that, that com- commercial shipping thinks about that military doesn't always think about. All right, well, I guess we're getting very close to time, so any last uh, orders, please? Any questions? Anything else you'd like to add, uh, Sal? 
No, I, I listen. I appreciate the chance to uh, be on here with you. I, I feel like I'm sitting in with the Beatles. It's it's it, 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 it's great. Well, maybe the monkeys. Maybe the monkeys. Uh, yeah, we'll take the monkeys. The monkeys is benefit, honestly. More like Joe Bengals. <laughs> I was going to say, oh. I, would have, I would have taken Ringo Starr purely because he narrated a lot of the Thomas the Tank Engine uh, videos. <laughs> Which my son loved forever, so I have ever watched like, every episode yeah. of that. So, Funny thing was, I knew who Ringo Starr was as a narrator of those things long before I knew he was a member of the Beatles. Because <laughs> the, uh, the, the introduction when I was about two or three was like, as told by storyteller Ringo Starr, and then when I was about eight or nine, it was like they're like, "Oh, this this musician." I was like, "No, he's not. He's a storyteller." No <laughs> 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 way. Thanks, Alex. You made, me, you made me feel very old right then, Alex. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, thank you immensely for that. It's you know, uh, this is what we set out to do: is that we always um, we always strive to find the context, to find you know the the bits that influence the centre that everyone ignores mm. and um, without which the centre cannot hold. And, uh, you know, the, the Merchant Marine is, you know, such an obviously important um, asset strategically, nationally, economically, um, and yet it just, for whatever reason, it's just not, you know, uh, not politically, not socially, um, you know, flavor of the month and it hasn't been for, cent- for more than a century unfortunately but um i think we you know uh, one would hope that um the bit of a wake-up call that we've had with COVID 19 might make people suddenly realize that actually no that stuff doesn't just arrive in tesco magically and no that stuff doesn't arrive in the ulithi harbor magically mm-hmm. and that um what what do you mean we don't have any ships and uh, i think you know australia might actually be an example where that lesson might be finally getting rammed home into its politicians' heads. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for the first time in many decades, we're actually now starting to talk about things like um, rebuilding our national fuel stockpile, and you know, which raises the issue of how do we get fuel here? Uh, and uh, you know, while our various uh, think tanks have been hammering on about it for so many years, it's now finally started to enter the political discourse. And I think the the thing that everyone you always have to remember is that you you can have Mahanian theory, you can have Corbett theory, whatever theory of, of sea control you like, but if you read past the first six pages in summary, you'll always find that any any serious naval theorist, including both of them, always says this is how you achieve sea control, this is how you keep sea control, what you then do with sea control is you win the war and you win the war by keeping your merchant routes open and keeping the enemy's merchant routes closed because there's yep. no point in dominating an empty ocean <laughs> very true mm. okay well thank you right. so much thank you much thank you very much thank you gentlemen i appreciate it thank you so much it's been an honor and a pleasure Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.